The author James Clear in his book, Atomic Habits, describes habits as really the compound interest of self-improvement. Now what that means then is when you see what looks or appears to be a, a rather significant or a big change in somebody's life, it wasn't more than likely because of one big change they made, but rather smaller changes consistently carried out over time that resulted in that big change. The same way that the magic of compound interest builds wealth. It's, it's not a big lump sum all at once, but it's small incremental increases that exponentially multiply and build wealth. Now, of course, for anybody to actually appreciate the value uh, of habits, they have to appreciate the significance and value of self-improvement. And it might be shocking and surprising, but an astounding number of people in this world are not really interested in growing or self-improvement. They would much rather just stay in the situation that they're in and stick in that situation and complain about it and whine about it and wonder why nothing changes in the world around them and prefer almost that narrative of negativity over any positive good that could come from change or self-improvement or growth. And in fact, for, for some folks, it's, it's not even a matter of just seeing the glass as half empty. It's that they view life as everybody else got a glass and they didn't even get a glass. So if you don't see the, the significance or the value of growth, uh, which has a, a special application for us as Christians because growth is not an optional thing, but it's something that God calls us to. If we value that and appreciate that, then we'll see the significance of establishing healthy habits. Why is it that you have maybe tried in the past and failed or struggled at establishing any kind of habit? While there may be a number of factors, I'd be willing to bet one of them deals with the motivation. What oftentimes is what drives us to establish habits, guilt. Positively or negatively stated, oftentimes it is nothing more than guilt that drives us. I, I should be more like this or I shouldn't be doing that. Therefore, I need to establish a habit so that I stop that behavior or start this pattern. The problem with guilt, though, is that it is a horrible motivator because we see that what it really is is a slave driver, a taskmaster that is not concerned about our heart or, or our motivation or where we're in. It's only concerned about what the end result, whether or not behavior changes. So guilt is always going to let us down if it's the driving force to establish any sort of healthy habits. But we as Christians realize that we have something far more effective, far more powerful at our disposal than guilt. We have grace. And throughout the course of this series, the hope is that we would appreciate, and not only appreciate, but, but finally maybe embrace the difference between guilt-induced habits and grace-motivated habits. That makes all the difference in our world. And so over the course of this series, we are going to look at Jesus and his healthy habits of, of his grace. But it, let's be clear on why we're going to look at Jesus. What we are not doing is holding up Jesus as merely an example. To do so would diminish everything that Jesus came to do. 
And the fact of the matter is that we don't really actually need more examples to follow. The examples aren't the issue. There are plenty of examples for us to follow if we want to establish healthy habits or make changes or be like somebody else. Jesus didn't come to be just an example. And if you pay attention in the confession of faith that we're using during the season of Lent, you'll see that what we're really focusing on is Jesus as our substitute. To appreciate those healthy habits of grace is to see that Jesus, in his life and ministry, he gives us grace through not just his suffering on the cross, but also through his, his life of perfect obedience. And it's that grace that we're going to tap into to free us to pursue these healthy habits. So when we talk about Jesus as our substitute, there are two components of Jesus' life that we have to understand were essential in terms of him carrying out our salvation. We call them his passive obedience and his active obedience. Both were not only necessary for our salvation, but both are essential to our tuning in to Jesus' grace to establish our own healthy habits. Passive obedience is probably the one that we most often think of when we consider why Jesus is the source and the certainty of our salvation. Jesus passively allowed himself to suffer and to be punished and to die in our place. And that's remarkable for a number of reasons. One, it's remarkable because Jesus didn't deserve any of that. He was completely innocent. He didn't deserve to be crucified as a criminal. But two, it's also remarkable because as God in the flesh, Jesus actually had the power to avoid any sort of suffering or punishment, to snap his finger, to do whatever he wished or willed and put an end to it. But instead, he chose to endure that suffering, to allow others uh, to inflict it on him, and he passively dealt with that while others punished him, while others mocked him, while ultimately others crucified him. And he served in that way as our substitute because he knew that by his death, he was paying for our sins. That's Jesus' passive obedience, but just as essential is his active obedience. See, if, if we only had Jesus' passive obedience, his suffering and death, that would mean that our sins, our wrongdoings, have been paid for. But that's not the only requirements that God has for us to enjoy an eternal relationship at peace with him. Not only can we not have sin in our life, but he also demands, because he is a God of justice and this is how he created mankind at the beginning, he demands that we are perfect and holy. And that is where Jesus' active obedience comes into play. During his life, Jesus actively achieved and maintained perfect obedience as our Savior. Jesus, in his life, always carried out everything that his Father willed for him, never falling into sin or temptation, never failing to carry out his Father's perfect will. And so when we look at Jesus, and we look at the life that he lived in our place as our substitute, we rejoice and we focus on, during the series, his active obedience, that Jesus carried out all that was necessary for our salvation. So with that complete confidence, then we look to Jesus and his habits of grace to apply them to our own life and to guide us, to fuel us and motivate us by that same grace to establish habits in our own lives. This morning, we start by looking at the first habit of his grace, faithfulness. 
What comes to mind? How do you define, what do you think of when that word faithfulness comes to mind? Oftentimes, faithfulness is considered as simply a, a doing what we, we say we're going to do. It's a commitment. It's a dedication to one thing or another. We talk about an employee being a faithful employee, doing his job faithfully, regularly, throughout his many years for a company. We talk about being faithful in marriage. And, and those all have a, a place, and they're not bad definitions, but maybe we're even, maybe we're even overcomplicating it just a little bit. Could we simplify our understanding of faithfulness to mean nothing more than being full of faith? To be filled with trust? To have the confidence that not in my own ability to stay the course in my life, but, but in God's ability to keep his promises and stay his course in my life. If that's the understanding of faithfulness that we have, then we see it in the life of Jesus recorded for us in Mark's gospel today. And notice that, that Jesus is filled with faith even though he is virtually emptied of everything else during this 40 days in the desert. Mark describes it very simple, very short and sweet. In chapter 1, he explains in verse 12, that once the Spirit sent him, Jesus, out into the desert. And he was in the desert 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Virtually empty, devoid of everything else, yet Jesus was full of faith. He didn't have a, a suitcase that he was dragging along with him with a, a number of changes of clothes as his clothes got dirty or soiled or disgusting in the desert. He didn't have a cooler filled with refreshment and food that he could tap into at a moment's notice anytime he was hungry. There was no cozy, comfy bed to snuggle into at night. Not even a roof over his head. He had none of those things. And yet, what he did have was faith. Empty of everything else, the creature comforts, the, the basic necessities of life that we take for granted, yet Jesus was filled with faith. He was faithful. And isn't that oftentimes when we realize the importance of faith, when, when we have nothing else and we have just faith, we realize that we have just what we need. Jesus was faithful in our place. And the other Gospels go into great detail in recording how Jesus faithfully withstood Satan's temptations that he brought to him in the desert. But Mark informs us that that wasn't the full extent of Jesus' faithfulness. Even after this account in the desert, Jesus faithfully proclaimed the message that he came to declare, the good news of the Gospel. Mark says it in verse 15, the time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus didn't mute his message, maybe even more so noteworthy, because Mark tells us in verse 14, this was after John was put into prison. So Jesus knew the consequence that could come as a result of proclaiming that message. John was in jail for doing so, and yet Jesus faithfully proclaimed that good news of the gospel. And Jesus wasn't the only one who was faithful in these short verses, this short section of the gospel of Mark. We see the other persons of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit and the Father, also faithfully carrying out their roles in, in the Trinity to perfectly complement Jesus' faithful obedience, active obedience in our place. Mark said that it was the Holy Spirit 
who sent him out into the desert. The Holy Spirit recognized that part of Jesus serving as our Savior was for Jesus to go face to face, to duel with the devil, and to win that battle of temptation. Again, to actively obey, to keep God's commands, to be perfect in our stead. So the Holy Spirit was the one that directed Jesus into that setting for for Jesus to be able to carry out that role and that need that we have as our substitute. But the Father also carried out his promise. Mark tells us that angels came to, to Jesus' side to tend to him. And you might remember Psalm 91, verse 11, where, where this promise is made. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. So the Father faithfully carried out that promise as well to meet the needs of his son Jesus in that dark time of trial and temptation. So we have the the Trinity marvelously, beautifully demonstrating faithfulness on our behalf. Let that be what prompts us, what drives us to pursue these habits of his grace. God's faithfulness on your behalf. And it isn't as if Jesus' faithfulness merely fills in the cracks of our faithfulness, but rather it's Jesus' perfect record of faithfulness alone that that drives away any fear we have of falling short of God's demands. Or, Or would you prefer to offer up your track record of faithfulness before God? Would you be confident bringing to the table a demonstration of of a life filled with faithfulness to God and and count on him using that as the trek record, the, 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 the basis on which he judges or determines your faithfulness? A, a life that has shown ourselves to be reflective often more times of somebody without faith than a person with faith. Uh, Many times that we have demonstrated our worry and our anxiety instead of a confident, faithful trust in Jesus and, and God keeping his promises in our lives. Would you present to God as acceptable your faithfulness in your relationship with him, which is which goes hops from lukewarm to hot to cold and back and forth and all over the map? Is that the track record of faithfulness that you'd like to offer up to God as acceptable? Let it not be so because we all know what would be the outcome if we offered up our track record of faithfulness before God. And it wouldn't be pretty. Let Jesus' faithfulness serve as the perfect record of your faithfulness. Because, quite frankly, that's what God sees when he looks at you. That's the beauty of Jesus' active obedience is that it frees us from the guilt of our failure or our our horrible track record at, at faithlessness and instead replaces it with Jesus' perfect obedience. That means not only have we been set free from that fear of our own sin and our own shortcoming, but we've also then been set free for a life of faithfulness. So God encourages you and he encourages me. We don't have to measure up to something that we could never be. Jesus already was that and is that for us. So now God just says, as we're talking about these habits of his grace, he says, just be who I see you to be. I see you to be faithful. So live that way. Free from fear. Not motivated or driven by guilt but compelled by grace because God has taken Christ's faithfulness and credited it to you 
And so now we strive to live that way. So be faithful in your marriage. Be faithful in your relationships. Be faithful in letting your light shine on social media. Be faithful in every way possible under the sun. I don't know about you, but, but this is the kind of stuff that excites me about being a child of God. To know that our sins have been paid for, but not just that, but we have a faithful Savior who has also given his perfect track record of obedience and credited that to us. So I can strive to grow and improve and, and I can chase after these things and want to better myself. Why? Because I'm confident that any growth is God's work in me and through me. There's no burden at all on my shoulders. I've been freed for a life of growth in Jesus and that means pursuing these healthy habits of his grace. God is always the one who gets the credit for that Christian living. We call it sanctification in our lives. And so then I want to strive to be as faithful as God sees me already in Christ Jesus. How do we, how do, we do that? How do we incorporate, how do we implement these, these steps? Well, my encouragement is always to avoid being overwhelmed by all of the areas of, in our lives that we could and, and see value in improving and being more faithful. There are, are more than we'll ever be able to succeed at over the course of this life. So pick, pick just one. Pick an area and, and determine to establish regular habits that will help you be faithful in that area. Maybe it looks like faithfully reading your Bible daily. Maybe for you it's, it's the uh, determination to consistently attend worship every week or to give consistently, or to share your faith regularly, or to actually schedule your prayers and list out the people that you are praying for on a regular basis. Any one of those are going to, to be a blessing, not just to you, but to Christ's church. Because as you seek to implement these habits, which, as James Clear, I think, rightly identified, are, are really compound interests towards self-improvement, you are not the only one who is going to grow and be blessed. But God sees your growth and your faithfulness as very essential and important to the work that he wants to do in building up Christ's kingdom. So he seeks to grow not just you, but others as well. And he will use your faithfulness to make an impact on his kingdom by his grace. So may God give us the strength and move us by his grace today and in the weeks ahead as we continue to look at how to establish these healthy habits of his grace. Amen.